Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. In this week's Trending News EU episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. So in our last Trending News EU, we spoke about Therese Coffey and her plans for the Department of Health as part of Liz Truss's new government. And it's been the time of turmoil in the UK has continued. And since then, Liz Truss has resigned and we have a new government. Rishi Sunak is the new prime minister in the UK. And with that has come another change at the head of the Department of Health, with Steve Barclay now taking on the role. Yeah, Ollie, lots of change from a political standpoint in the UK. And I just read this morning that inflation has just gone above 11% for the first time since the 80s. And we're obviously in the midst of a cost of living crisis. And this brings the threat of quite a lot of strike action. And we've obviously seen the rail operators been striking throughout this year and, and prior to that as well. And now this is transcending into the healthcare sector with nurses throughout the UK set to strike for the first time in their history. So the Royal College of Nursing, or RCN, balloted over 300,000 of their members, which is the biggest in that union's 106-year history, and it marks the first time of this national action. There's record nursing vacancies in the NHS, and in the past year, 25,000 nursing staff have actually left the profession. It's gonna affect nurses pretty much throughout the UK, uh, over half of hospitals. So it's going to be in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, but not in England, where the turnout was too low. It's obviously a, a dramatic decision that the RCN have felt like they have to take. I'm sure this was not a path that they wanted to go down. I had a look at, at why they were striking. And as you mentioned, with the cost of living crisis, it, it really does seem to come down at the heart of it to pay. So. The RCN is campaigning for a pay rise of 5% above inflation. Their standpoint is that nurses are already underpaid and actually their wages have fallen further and further behind over the past decade or so. Their perspective is that nurses are now working almost one day a week for nothing. So their salary has fallen 20% in real terms since 2010. This is also having huge impact on, on the mental health of nurses. We obviously expect them to look after us when we're in hospital. But then whilst they're doing that, they're concerned about how they're going to pay the bills, how they're going to take care of their children. And it is clearly contributing towards the, the staffing situation. That, as you said, Jack, this is going to impact half of hospitals in the, in the UK through the strike, but also the, the huge number of vacancies that we have in, in nursing across the country. Yeah, Ollie, you can see why they're striking based on all that, those stats and insights you just provided. And there's probably gonna be quite a lot of impact as a result. I mean, government ministers are saying that they've got well-old contingency plans in place, but we've obviously heard that before. I think nurses, given their critical role they play, obviously, in patient care, this is gonna be really, really significant unless some kind of deal is reached because they could be striking before Christmas. And obviously Christmas isn't a great time or the cold weather, you get a lot of patients coming into hospital, so not a good time for them to be striking. But obviously you can see why they're doing it. 
It's going to likely affect routine services like routine operations. There's already a 7 million patient backlog in terms of those operations, uh, largely caused by COVID, but other factors as well. But they're looking to hopefully protect critical services such as cancer care. But hopefully that will come to be. I think there's also worrying times ahead. We've got the budget announcement tomorrow, I believe, where they're going to be introducing a raft of other measures. And we're obviously amidst that cost of living crisis we talked about before, but they've got to plug a £50 billion hole in public finances. So getting an agreement around pay might be challenging. And I'll just finish on that more strikes could be expected across the NHS. You know, the blood and transplant services, they're being balloted, and it could go as far as cleaners and other essential uh, workers within the profession. So I I think there's more to come in terms of further strikes within this sector in the coming weeks and months. And as you said, with the budget that we're expecting tomorrow and the warning that the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has given us, it actually seems like the government and nurses are probably moving even further apart in terms of their expectations and, and what they're going to deliver in the future rather than moving closer together. So this is one we'll keep an eye on and see if they do manage to reach an agreement and, and avoid the strike action. Also, in more positive news for the NHS and for patients, there have been some interesting approvals for the NHS recently, especially in terms of a deal for life-saving breast cancer. In the UK, obviously, we hear a lot on the news and through advertisement of breast cancer, and triple negative breast cancer currently impacts around 8,000 women a year, and that is about 15% of all, all breast cancer cases. The issue with triple negative breast cancer is it's very challenging to treat and the survival time is unfortunately shorter than a lot of other types of breast cancer. It also disproportionately affects younger women and also women from black backgrounds. The NHS has now struck a commercial deal to offer a potentially life-saving drug to more patients with this clearly very aggressive type of breast cancer. And it could save some women who at the moment have to have their whole breast removed and can help shrink the cancers and stop them spreading in this very aggressive form. So I think this is amazing news that we've got this approval for this groundbreaking drug for patients suffering with a really horrible condition, triple negative breast cancer. And that should be some additional approvals and some good news for patients with some additional therapies being approved on the NHS. And It's essentially announced its plans to launch an innovative laser therapy, and it's called Laser Interstitial Thermal Therapy, or LITT, for patients diagnosed with epilepsy. And it's a minimally invasive surgical procedure, and it can really help with seizures, with the fact that patients with epilepsy obviously suffer significantly from. One final one I wanted to cover before we move on is they've also approved the NHS a cutting-edge bionic arms And essentially, these prosthetics will be controlled by electrical brain signals and have multiple grip capabilities, allowing for a greater range of movements. I think that's a really cool one because they're helping patients that struggle in that respect. Moving to something slightly different, and a common theme on our Trending News EU podcast throughout this year has been sustainability. It's a topic that Ollie and I are really, really passionate about, and we want to continue to talk about as it's such a critical issue facing us. And November was a really critical month for climate change and health as representatives and negotiators gathered in Egypt at COP27 very recently to urgently reduce and focus on reducing these greenhouse gas emissions and mitigate impacts from climate change. 
The European Union had the hottest summer on record. There were devastating wildfires across the region, and they had the highest carbon emissions since 2007, which killed many, many people. So obviously, pharma companies have a key role to play in this space. And Ollie, I think you're going to share some insights around some of the major players that are doing to help tackle this global and significant issue. Yeah, so with COP27 happening in Egypt, I had a look at what some pharma companies in Europe have been doing and players like AstraZeneca, GSK, Sanofi, Merck, they're all in different ways starting to commit to reducing emissions and setting targets to really deliver net zero health systems much faster than we might have thought possible. And some of them have set very ambitious targets. So I think healthcare and pharma can really play as an industry a leading role in this. And clearly, the success of these companies puts them in a position to be able to invest money into becoming net zero, perhaps quicker than some other industries with smaller margins and less resources available. Yeah, that life sciences companies, as you said, are in a great position to be able to really influence this. And some of the key strategies they are deploying is one, decarbonizing their supply chain, which can have a significant impact moving from petrol based to electric vehicles amongst their sales rep team, power purchase agreements, installation of on-site renewable energy sources such as solar panels. But they're also looking at their suppliers. Obviously, pharma companies have huge swathes of suppliers and distributors and manufacturers they work with, and they're actually putting pressure on them to reduce their emissions as that makes up a significant amount of the wider footprint these companies have. So a number of strategies that hopefully with many of them adopting can lead to a big difference and impact on greenhouse gas emissions. Exactly, Jack. And at the last United Nations Climate Change Conference, some of those European pharma companies that I was listing formed a task force to start working together and coming up with solutions to directly address this. So in areas such as patient care, one of their big aims is to bring together all the players in that complex space. So the matrix of health policymakers, regulators, payers, doctors, patient groups, getting them all together and having one discussion around how do we spread the word of the importance of decarbonization, but also bring all of those stakeholders together and start to take productive steps to reducing carbon emissions. One of the other really interesting areas that the task force is looking at is clinical trials. So how can all of those pharma companies come together and come up with a framework to start as a stage one measuring the greenhouse gas emissions from clinical trials, and then a sensible stage two as part of phase two and phase three clinical trials is to start reducing those emissions as well. And the task force is hoping to come up with goals and, and, and emissions targets to make clinical trials net zero. Looking forward to seeing what their target date is and when they hope to achieve that by. And Jack, I thought we could end with some reflections on a, on a slightly smaller event than COP, which I attended recently. So New Scientist Live was at the Excel Center. And the last time that I attended New Scientist Live was also at the Excel Center, but in 2019. And it really was a moment of reflection for me because in between those two conferences, obviously the Excel Center became an emergency COVID-19 hospital and really marked a shift back to what we would consider normal life. At the event, I was listening to Sir Patrick Valance, 
So for those who aren't aware, he's the chief scientific advisor to the UK government. And during COVID, he was on our screens daily, giving press conferences, if, if not weekly, for a, a much longer period of time. And Sir Patrick Vance was giving a couple of perspectives on innovation and R&D in the UK. And a couple of things that really stuck with me was the UK's ability to respond to COVID and the impact that existing healthcare infrastructure and capability had on that. So one of the, the numbers he gave that really struck me was that 14% of global high impact publications are coming out of the UK, whereas we only have 1% of the global population. So clearly there's innovation and R&D on healthcare that's happening in the UK. We're punching above our weight in that sense. Also having existing companies like AstraZeneca or institutions like the University of Oxford enable us to run clinical trials and develop vaccines. On the flip side, one of the examples Sir Patrick gave was in the UK, we, we didn't really have existing diagnostic capability at large scale versus perhaps a country like Germany who did. And that meant that when it came to large scale testing, the UK was much slower to, to catch up with, with what other countries could do. Sounds like an amazing event, Ollie. I wish I'd been there. And I think, yeah, it, I'm proud to live in the UK and be known as being a world-class R&D research centre for the world, really punching above our weight. And, you know, there have been lots of lessons learned from COVID. And obviously one of them was that one you called out around this diagnostic capacity and capability that we really need to enhance to help us future-proof for any kind of future pandemics or, or incidents. Although I think in that case, Germany got to the party a little bit before us in terms of their getting their diagnostics out. So by the time that we started rolling ours out, there was a big supply challenge with all the demand that was needed. And I wanted to touch on something a bit more broad in terms of the UK and its status as, as the leader. And, you know, it actually relates to Brexit because earlier this year, 115 grants for EU researchers were actually cancelled around a row over Brexit. And I think that's a real concern because what we're seeing is a lot of real senior researchers and incredibly intelligent individuals are actually leaving the UK to get funding outside of the UK in European countries because they're not getting their grants approved. So I think we need to keep an eye on that one because we really want to hold on to our status as a leader in this field. But if we're not able to grant funding to these really innovative projects and lose people to other countries outside of the UK, I think that's a bit of a cause for concern. Yeah, I think when we think about effective science and effective research, you always hear collaboration being mentioned and when scientists and researchers get frustrated jack as you say is when they just want to collaborate and get on with their research and unfortunately sometimes politics does get in the way of that so that is shocking to hear and, and hopefully we can continue to attract that top talent and have health research taking place in, in the uk on a related note jack the other item that really stuck with me was sir patrick's criticism of diversity within uk research Sir Patrick's approach to solving complex problems is very much to have people coming together from different backgrounds. And one of the ones that he was really focusing on was the gender split in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics in the UK. In terms of those graduating from university in the UK in those subjects, only 16% are female versus other countries that have a much higher proportion 
of their STEM graduates being female. And Sir Patrick really saw this as a, as a huge issue for the UK if we want to be effective leaders in healthcare research and something that's, that policy is really going to have to try and solve and, and encourage greater diversity in our academic population. Yeah, well, that's a really staggering statistic. I can't believe only 16% graduates coming through are female in the UK. And clearly there's work that needs to be done to increase the amount of females that work within this field, particularly as we just covered, that the UK is such a leader in this space. And I think tangentially related to this is this whole piece around gaining diversity within clinical trials, which is obviously related to research as so drugs coming through. And this is not a problem that's isolated in the UK, it's, it's globally that we're not getting enough diversity in clinical trials, particularly from underserved communities or, or black populations. And I actually did a project in this space relatively recently for a large life sciences client and won't have time to go into all the details here, but there are some strategies that can be taken and I think need to be taken to improve diversity within clinical trials and they centre around community engagement even the, the site researchers or sites putting them near underserved communities, having investigators from underserved communities present as part of the whole program and trying to reach out to really engage with communities and community leaders and, and go to places where these patients are like churches and other, other areas to really try and increase that diversity within clinical trials and also look at the data because there's not enough data showing that from the different populations that are coming through to help predict and shape future treatments. So I think that's a big gap that progress has been made, but a lot more needs to be done to improve that diversity within research. Yes, Jack, I mean, diversity in clinical trials and also diversity with research staff and with academics clearly is a, is a huge topic that all countries and all companies are trying to address and definitely one that our dynamic team is so passionate about and I know there's huge demand to, to continue our work in that space. So we'll keep on top of these stories and look forward to catching up next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, subscribe to the Trending Health podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company with ongoing healthcare industry change, please visit trendinghealth.com.